you would turn to Revelation chapters 2 and 3. We would like to think about, think together about the messages to the churches. This is probably one of the more familiar portions of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is not as familiar as it should be to us. We like to uh, theorize some of the prophetic passages, but we do not spend much time in Revelation. And I do believe that it's at the end of our Bibles for providential purpose, and that is that you need the rest of the scripture to understand it very well, but we should not neglect it. So the fact that we're looking at a familiar portion is not necessarily serving that goal because we need to be looking at the whole book. However, I feel drawn to this section because I believe it speaks to Calvary Mennonite Fellowship. And we want to look at two of these messages, or shall I say it, a portion of two of them, and just pass through the other six, or the other five, rather quickly. Again, our purpose is to make application to ourselves as a church. These messages were given to churches. They address the angel of the church. The angel simply is a word for messenger. So we variously understand what that means. Some would see it as the pastors or the pastor. Others would see it angelically. The word is simply messenger. And that is not our focus today because the message is primarily to the church or to each one of these churches. It is not specifically to individuals in the church. It is to the church of individuals. Now these passages have been used as a calendar of prophetic events. I think that may not be the case. However, some of these uses have distracted us from the point of the sections. For those who use it as a calendar, Laodicea, or Laodicea, however you wish to pronounce it, probably we will not get it absolutely correct, uh, is the present time, and so the emphasis is on that passage only, which does a disservice to the whole passage. I would like to read, uh, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 2, and then later we will read the section from chapter 3. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, 
who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him that overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This passage of Scripture is addressed to the church of Ephesus, the church that was planted by the Apostle Paul and others, a church that the missionary pastor Paul pastored for three years, during which time he states in Acts 20 that he warned them night and day for three years warned them about apostasy, about false doctrine, and so on. This is the church that this letter is written to by Jesus Christ, the head of the church. One generation, we believe, has passed since Ephesus was planted. And we find something different now than was present in the beginning of the church. This church is referred to as the loveless church because of what verse 4 says. I have this against you, that you have left your first love. The language requires us to understand that there has been a complete departure from the love relationship with Christ. The church is commended for its faithfulness to doctrine. It is commended for ferreting out false apostles and false teaching. The teaching of the Nicolaitans is also mentioned in verse 6. And so the church would pride itself, likely, in considering itself a pure church, pure in terms of the teachings of the scripture, with the major exception that they missed the main thing. And we need to remember 
that we can take a good and right biblical stand against false doctrine as the church at Ephesus apparently had done. That we can ferret out the false teachers, identify them. We can ferret out those who do not practice truth as the Nicolaitans did not and still miss it. So they were orthodox in doctrine, but in essence, the Lord says their life in Christ built upon the foundation of love for Christ had diminished, was missing. And again, they had had a complete departure from that. I want us to understand what the Lord is saying to them here. They had things right in terms of a belief system, but the core had become rotten in one generation. And if you look at verse 7, the promise to the one who would overcome, that is, the one who would respond to this message in following what the Lord called upon them to do, basically to repent. The promise is that they will be given to eat of the tree of life. Think about the corollary to that. Those who did not repent would not eat of the tree of life. So the Lord was not merely giving some corrective comments here for the church. No, it was not merely a course correction that was in view. It was not a course correction for those headed to heaven. It was that the church had turned away in such a way that they were lost and not headed to heaven at all. I believe that has to be the deduction from reading the promise of verse 7. So what are we talking about when we talk about this lost love or this departure from a love relationship with Christ? It is, I believe, illustrated by all appropriate love relationships. If you are in love, you are a man and you're in love with a woman, or you're a woman in love with a man, there are certain things that are fairly obvious. One, you want to please that person. If you men are in love with your wife, 
and she prefers uh, that you wear checkered shirts. If you love her, you will likely wear checkered shirts. And you can go on with that illustration over and over again. If you don't do, and again, we're not talking about sin issues here particularly. I hope you don't think a checkered shirt's sin. But anyway, uh, if you don't do what the person of your love enjoys and likes, then you are selfish. You are pig-headed in the wrong way, for those of you who were at the meeting the other night. Uh, you are self-centered. For if what the person you love asks is not in and of itself compromise, you would want to do it. To demonstrate your love for that person. It is not dissimilar in dealing with our love life with Christ. It is advertised, our love for Christ is advertised by our lives of compliance, joyful compliance with his will. And that seems to be the sort of thing that the Lord Jesus is saying to the Ephesian church. Your love life is gone. Your love life for Christ is gone. A corollary to that would be our love for one another advertises our love for Christ. That's something he asks us to do is to love one another. But that's not the central focus here. It is that they have lost, they have turned away, they have departed from their love life with Christ. And you see, in verse 5, there is this statement, do the first works. And that is why I have attempted to emphasize doing what the person you love would want. Because that does seem to be a measurement of one's love. That is what has happened to this church. Orthodox, their doctrinal statement would be accurate and good. They are busy dealing with false doctrine and false teachers. They are doing some very good things, but the Lord says, you have left your first love. This results in the next generation not following the teaching. In other words, there is an ongoing result. 
You have these people within a generation or approximately a generation after the church was planted having turned away from their genuine love life for Christ. The positions of the church are still accurate, biblically, but there is this diminishing, this turning away. And the next generation will not follow even the teachings. This has been repeated throughout church history. And the Lord gives a solution to it. And I want us to carefully look at this solution. Because I believe that we as a church may in fact be guilty of the same thing that the Ephesian church was guilty of. Notice what the Lord says to the Ephesian church. Verse 5. There are actually three things here. One is repeated. First of all, remember. Remember from where you have fallen. I want us for a few moments here this morning to think back not only in the history of this church but in your personal history of your relationship with Jesus Christ. When you were deeply in love with him and nothing was too great a sacrifice in following him. Reading his word was a joy. Spending time in prayer, satisfying. It was exciting to be a Christian. You had been saved from the depths of sin and your whole life was a joy in loving and serving Jesus. Now, there may be various flavors of all of that, but that was likely quite true of all of us here. And we joined together as a church in that flavor. But time has gone on. And while we have been faithful... I believe in attempting to maintain pure doctrine. Could it be that we have missed the essential thing? Maintaining a love relationship with Jesus Christ. And there is a conversion that takes place here, and it's a bad conversion. It's not a redemptive one. <clears throat> When we are in a love relationship with Jesus Christ, to serve him is a joy. When that love relationship grows cold, to serve him becomes a chore. 
And the chore leads away from serving him to simply minding our membership responsibilities in the church and eventually not even doing that. There's a process that takes place. I suggest that at least in part it has taken place here. And so when we're asked to do something uh, by our congregation, we do so grudgingly. Rather than being excited because we love Christ to have an opportunity to serve him and in the process of serving him to serve the church. And so the first thing that Jesus says to the church at Ephesus in terms of correction is, remember. Remember from where you've fallen. Remember how it used to be when you were deeply in love with Jesus and you would go anywhere, do anything, say anything for him. Secondly, he calls upon them to repent. He calls upon them to repent, which, as we have recently studied in the gospel, is an about face. It is a total opposite state of mind. It's a changing of one's mind going in the opposite direction. And so he calls upon them to remember where they came from and to repent with that memory, which means that they turn around from the direction they're going and go back to the memory. Go back to that love relationship with Jesus Christ. Now we often as we study a passage like this, simply respond, I want to do better. I really need to do better. That is not repentance. That's the language of the self-help people. And it is sadly wrong. Repentance is an about face go in the opposite direction, in this case, go back to the Christian life you enjoyed in the beginning. That is repentance. He calls upon them to repent. And then he says, repeat, if you want to keep the R's. He says, do the first works. Remember, repent, and do the first works. In other words, remember where you came from in your Christian life. Repent, turn in that direction, and go all the way in that direction to do what you did. And following Jesus 
enjoy. And of course, the verse ends with a condemnation. if they don't do what he commands them to do here. The removal of the lampstand, when as far as Jesus, the head of the church, is concerned, this is no longer a church. That is where Ephesus was headed. Interestingly enough, in the end, though perhaps not at this particular time frame, in the end, that is what happened. And that Ephesus became no longer a church. He says he will do that unless they repent. And so the word repent is repeated. Three things. Remember? Repent, do the first works, and then he says repent. So apart from repenting, there is no hope for Ephesus. And if our assessment has been correct of ourselves here today, apart from repenting, there is no hope for Calvary. Just to say we're going to do better is fooling ourselves. There must be repentance. There must be a remembering of how it was in the joy of fresh salvation. There must be a return to that. No amount of regulation can substitute for that. Though we manifest a sincere need for regulation. No amount of regulation can change the heart. It keeps order, and that is all. But a change of heart before God will provide a life that supersedes all regulation. So the church at Ephesus should speak, the message to the church at Ephesus should speak to the church at Calvary. Following the message to the church at Ephesus, there is a message to the persecuted church, Smyrna, the only church that does not have strong condemnation. There's a message to the compromising church, the church at Pergamos. There's a message to the corrupt church, the church in Thyatira. There's a message to the dead church, the church in Sardis. A message to the faithful church, the church in Philadelphia. And then we come to the last message. It would be true to say that all of these messages have applications to churches today and to our church here at Calvary as well. However, 
We're going to look at the last church, which is a message so-called to the lukewarm church. It's the final message uh, of these seven. It again is the Lord speaking to the church at Laodicea a generation or so after the, the church was started. And it has essentially no commendation, no approval. It is a, it's a message we often refer to in our conversation because of the graphic use of the word lukewarm and the subsequent nausea of God over that. I'll read the message. We'd like to comment briefly. Verse 14 of chapter 3, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eyesalve, that ye may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him that over, who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the lukewarm church. It is a final warning to the church of the Laodiceans. They have said, by the way that they live, that they do not need God. That they can do these things, this, uh, this religious thing, they can do quite well by themselves, thank you. And they do not need God. Jesus says to them, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. 
This is another set of expressions that speaks to some of the same truths as the epistle to the <coughs> Ephesians or the letter to the Ephesians. Message to the Ephesians. I'll get it right here after a while. Uh, was. In other words, they left their first love. They, they had completely departed from their love relationship with Jesus. Here, uh, the Laodiceans hadn't necessarily denied huge blocks of doctrine, but they were, that would be cold, I suppose, uh, but they were not warm to God at all. They were not tender to his call. They were not open to the life-changing grace of God. And so he calls them lukewarm. If you want to paraphrase what Jesus says to the Laodicean church in the modern language, you make me sick, is in essence what he said to them. Instead of the vibrancy that comes from a love relationship with Jesus, a desire to serve him with all our heart, mind, and soul, it was this, blah. Are you a Christian? Yes, I think so. You doing anything for Jesus? Don't have time. It's that sort of attitude. I can't actually put the words in their mouths, of course. But that sort of attitude. I'm busy with my stuff. God will have to make room for himself. And then the Lord enlarges on their stuff. They were apparently materially wealthy. And he talks to them in verse 17. You're self-sufficient. And you've made yourself independent from me, says Jesus. I have needed nothing. I'm willing to accept the creed, but I really don't need God. Everything's going fine with me. He said, you think that you are self-sufficient. You think that you can operate independent from me, but what you don't know, verse 17, is that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. And so the message applied to our church here and now. Are we living a life or lives apart from or independent from the gracious supply of God. Do we feel we need God? Do we feel that we must talk to him every day? Do we feel that we must 
read his word every day? Or do we sort of take it or leave it? We're getting along pretty well. That is the Laodicean attitude. And Jesus is not gentle here. He said, you don't know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You folks are a mess. You make me sick. In essence is what the Lord Jesus Christ says to the church of the Laodiceans. Now he also provides, when they say they don't need anything by the way they live, he tells them that they do most definitely need something. And again, the inference is that these are not converted people. Whatever they may have been in the past, the Lord speaks to them as not converted people. He said, you need to recognize your need. You need to recognize that before God, you are wretched, miserable, blind, poor, no clothes. That's how God sees it. And he says, you need to buy from me gold refined in the fire. Speaks of trial, purging. You need to get over this idea that you have it all together because you don't have it all together and you need some purging. You need to buy from me what a life of trial brings. He says that you may be rich because you are poor. And you need to buy from me white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. White speaks of purity. It speaks of holiness. Come to me, says Jesus. Take my righteousness. Your righteousness stinks. And he says, anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. The business of the Savior, illustrated physically in his earthly sojourn, and continuing to this very day, is to cause the blind to see. This is a spiritual sight to understand things as he sees them, not as men see. You know, as men see, our church is doing great. As God sees, it may be nauseous to him. Anoint your eyes with eyes have 
from the Savior that you may see. He calls upon them to be zealous about this and to repent. So there's this call to come to Jesus to receive what we really need, not just what we think we need. This call to repent. And the emphasis of the Savior is, I'm still calling. We know scripturally that he will not always still be calling. That may vary from individual to individual. Hebrews tells us that Esau wanted to repent and he found no repentance though he sought it with tears. Esau had crossed the line. Apparently Laodicea hadn't quite crossed that line yet but they were nearing it. So the Savior is still calling them. And you'll notice that he goes on in this vein in verse 20 behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come into him and dine with him and he with me and again reflecting quite literally on the language here Jesus says I have taken my stand on your threshold and am continually knocking The Savior calls the church or those from the church of the Laodiceans. He calls those from the church Calvary at Harrisonburg. I'm standing on the threshold. I'm continually knocking. If you'll open the door, if you'll open the door and let me come in, I will come in and dine. And you'll know gold refined in the fire. You will know white raiment. You will see as you are seen. That's the call to us today. You may say, well, preacher, you painted a pretty dark picture of our church. You tell me. How far off is it? This is the word of God, not mine. To actual churches. And by application to this church. The call is there. If we go on in our stubborn way, or ways, there will come a day when there's no more call. Now is the day. This is the hour. Hear him. Remember. Repent. And do the first works. May we pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to read through this portion of your word, apply it as strongly as needed by your spirit to each of our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. 